Okay. Show me. Sometimes that is better. Welcome to the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. Be sure you never, ever scream. A podcast where we will explore the dark corners of our world, the weird, the creepy, and the strange. There are no accidents, no coincidences. I am your host, Eric Carrier. The Boogeyman is real. And they must be coming night. My co-host is Jessica Carrier. Thank you for joining us for a journey into the unknown. Be one of us. Let's get started with today's show. Hi guys, welcome to the show. This is the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast and I am your host Eric. I'm here as always with my wife and my co-host Jessica. Jess, how are you today? I'm doing really good. It's interesting how the weather went from below freezing to 90 degrees. So it's a little hot here, but it's better than below freezing. That is not interesting for Illinois at all. All you have to do is wait in a couple hours and the weather is going to change here. Yes, and it's not going to change gradually. It's going to change dramatically. There's no spring. It's just winter and summer. But at least I got my garden planted. Yes, happy Mother's Day, by the way. Thank you. It was a wonderful Mother's Day, except for the fact that I was sick, but my family took care of me, so that was great. Well, Jess, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion on urban legends and if they're based on actual events or truth. So last time, you kind of burst my bubble a little bit when we discovered that there have actually not been any hook hand murders. So what urban legend are you going to ruin for me today? (laughs) Well, you might be surprised about what I found out about kidney heists. Hmm, that sounds interesting. But before we can get into that interesting stuff, we have to take a few moments and do some self-promotion. Don't worry, we'll keep it simple. Basically, the spiel is this. Thank you for listening. Please share the show. Check out our website if you're interested in merch or leaving a tip. Leave a review and subscribe to our social media channels. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, and love to hang out and meet you guys there. We do enjoy hearing from you, so please reach out and uh, connect with us, and we can talk about some of this weird stuff that we're into. Some of that weird stuff we're going to keep to ourselves, so. (laughs) Jess, is there anything else? Nope. All right, let's get started with today's show. All right, so part two of Mostly True Urban Legends. Jess, what is the first urban legend that we are going to tackle today? This is one of my favorite ones, probably because I'm not scared of spiders. But I have people that I know who are, so for any arachnophobes, this urban legend may be too hard for you to hear and you might need to skip a little bit. No, don't skip. Listen. (laughs) The best way to conquer your fears is to do it through exposure. And this would be some good exposure to spiders. So definitely stick around. No skipping. So Jess, who are these people that you're referring to that are scared of spiders that you know? Well, one is our son. He is terrified of them to the point of almost passing out. And the weird thing is spiders are attracted to him. If there's going to be a spider in the room, it is going to be going on him. 
I'm not scared of a spider like that's in the room, but a spider that's like actually crawling on me, I'm not going to be cool with that at all. So I can understand that fear. It's not good to have anything crawling on you that you don't really know what it is. But I mean, we had a tarantula and I would let it crawl on me all the time. Yes, that is true. Jessica and I owned two tarantulas when we first got married. They were easy apartment pets and they're actually great pets. Yeah, you only have to feed them like once every few weeks, and you don't even have to water them if you live somewhere that's got a lot of humidity. Wow, Jess, it's been a long time since I've thought about Cousin It and Thing. Yeah, we had to give them away because we were moving somewhere where we couldn't have them, but they were good to have. I loved having them around. We donated them to a children's museum, I believe, right, Jess? Yeah, in Boise, Idaho, and they were really happy to have them because our spiders molted, and I guess the spiders they had wouldn't molt, so it was good. We miss you, Cousin It and Thing. (laughs) Not sure they're still alive. So what is this urban legend, Jess? Well, the urban legend is called The Spider Bite. The first time I heard of this legend was when I read the book Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. The name of the story was The Red Spot, and it was horrifying and wonderful to read. Here's how the legend goes. The legend always involves a young girl who is concerned about her appearance. And one night, while she's asleep, she feels something crawl across her face, and then stop. She realizes that it's a spider and flings it off her face. The next morning, she notices a red spot on her cheek, just where the spider had stopped. She asks her mom about it, and her mom tells her that it just looks like a spider bite. She says, don't scratch it, and it should go away. Well, it doesn't go away. The bite gets more painful, and it grows into a small boil. The boil gets larger and becomes even more painful. The girl again goes to her mother, who dismisses her pain as natural as the infection comes to a head. Unfortunately, the boil doesn't go away. It gets larger and becomes even more painful, and the mother finally starts to get a little concerned and calls the doctor. Of course, the doctor's unavailable until the next day, so the girl attempts to soothe herself by taking a hot bath. As she soaks in the bath, The boil bursts and releases a swarm of baby spiders. The girl screams as the spiders crawl all over her and then go into her bath. As she comes to the terrifying realization that the boil was actually a spider's nest in the flesh of her face. Well, that's not graphic or disgusting. (laughs) It is, and that's why I like it. Now, I've heard different variations of this story as well, Jess. One other variation that I've heard is her standing in front of a mirror trying to pop a pimple or a boil on her face when the same scenario develops where the spiders start running across her face and all over her body and it's creepy and gross. And if you're a spider-phobe or an arachnophobe, this is a awful, awful urban legend for you. There are also other variations of the story that include families bringing in a Christmas tree or other things like that that are full of either scorpions or spiders that release all over their house. Not embedded in their body in some way, but still all over the place and in their environment. Jess, have you heard either of those variations? I haven't, but I can imagine how it would come about. Now, so with regard to this urban legend... There is actually some truth and some falsehood. So, what is the falsehood part of this, Jess? The good news is there are no spiders who lay eggs in the human body. The bad news is there are some insects who do. 
The other bad news is that even though spiders don't lay eggs in a human body, they can crawl into our crevices or our compartments, right? Yes. So it is not uncommon to have spiders or other small critters found in ear canals or other body locations. Mm-hmm. So Jess, this reminds me of a story that happened to one of our children. When we were first married and just had our first child, we had taken him to the doctor, and as part of his exam, the doctor was playing with him a little bit, and he told him that he needed to check his ears for monkeys. Right, Jess? Yeah, he said when he looked in his ear, he could see a monkey with a purple boxing glove. He was referring to the eardrum, but our son took that literally. And what happened a few nights later? He woke up in the middle of the night and just was screaming that the monkey was coming out of his ear. We couldn't (laughs) figure out what he was talking about. And so we went and looked in his ear and there was an ant that was crawling out of his ear. He thought it was the monkey with the purple boxing gloves that was coming out of his ear. He was absolutely frantic. Well, I guess I would be too if there was something in my ear coming out. No, I don't blame him for being frantic. I think that was (laughs) absolutely the right response to the situation. If something's crawling around my ear or buzzing around my ear, you're going to watch me go frantic too. Yeah, like when a fly goes into your eye or around your eye or your head or anything, it's not a good sensation. But it is a funny story and one worth telling to you guys. (laughs) Were you ever scared of earwigs when you were little that they were going to crawl into your ear? Oh my gosh. I grew up in Arizona and earwigs were a real thing and I was constantly terrified (laughs) that an earwig was going to crawl into my ear. And I think that stemmed probably from a particular scene in a Star Trek movie from, I believe it was The Wrath of Khan. It was one of the old Star Treks and it had William Shatner. And I just remember something about a creepy bug larva thing and an ear. Yeah, they took one of these bug larva things and they allowed it to crawl into someone's ear. Uh, and it freaked me out as a kid. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then, of course, they're called earwigs, which, you know, comes from the ear of the corn. But, you know, in my little kid mind, it was they crawl into your ear. Oh, no, they were definitely crawling into ears. I'm sure of it. <laughs> All right. So spiders are kind of off this list. But what are some of the other things that do bury themselves into the human body like this, Jess? I think the most obvious one is botfly larvae. Yes, these are very common in other countries such as Central or South America. You can watch YouTube videos of this being removed from different people. I don't recommend that. And I remember when I was working for a veterinarian as a teenager and we had to remove a couple of these botfly from a cat one time. In America? Yes, in America. Oh, that's horrible. Now, I cannot say that this was a bot fly specifically because I don't remember what it was that we removed, but it was two large larvae of some sort. And I do think he called them bot flies. Well, as we've talked about before, the bot fly is native to Central and South America. And what happens is they glue their eggs to mosquitoes and other blood-sucking insects These insects then bite their victim, which can be a person, transferring their eggs to the victim. Then the eggs hatch, and the larva wriggles into your skin, 
and it creates kind of a, a pimple or a boil, kind of like in our story, which leaks pus. And the baby bot flies eat that pus and live in that hole until their metamorphosis is complete and they escape your body after about five to ten weeks and then they begin the cycle all over again. Isn't that wonderful, Eric? No, there is nothing <laughs> wonderful about that at all. And the videos that I've seen on YouTube of them removing these <laughs> are nothing short of awful. Eric, why don't you tell us about the Tunga Penetrans? Okay. So Tunga penetrans are a species of flea that are common in Central and South America. And they are sometimes called jiggers or jigger fleas or sand fleas or burrowing fleas. Now, if you live in the southern United States, we have these things called chiggers. Now, chiggers are completely different than jiggers or jigger flea. Yes, chiggers are little red mites, but uh, they are not related to this species of flea. Now, these fleas, during their parasitic phase, infect mammals, including humans. The infection occurs when the female fly burrows into the bottom of your foot to drink your blood. The flea then engorges itself on your blood, growing about 2,000 times its previous size. This occurs in about one week's worth of time. She then lays up to 200 eggs that fall onto the ground hatch, and wait for the next bare foot to pass and pick them up to start the cycle all over again. This is particularly scary for me because I walk around barefoot all the time. Now, I don't live in Central or South America or Southern Africa, but still, that's just creepy to me. Yeah, probably not a great idea to walk around these countries without shoes. And to some degree, you have to be concerned about that in the United States as well because hookworms also can enter our bodies through our feet. Didn't realize the hookworms were in the United States. Yes, hookworms can absolutely be transmitted in the United States, but they're not really considered to be a public health problem like they are in Central and South America. All right, Jess, let's talk about one more little critter that causes us some issues, the loa loa worm. Yes, this is something that we don't have to worry about here in the United States, but if you're from Africa, I am so sorry. The loa loa worm hitches a ride inside deer flies. When they bite you, the larvae enter through the wound. So this is not like an egg like the other ones, but it's actual live larvae that go into the wound. After growing beneath your skin for about five months, they reach adulthood and they release thousands, yes, I said thousands of embryos a day. The embryos travel throughout your body and sometimes you can even see the worms moving under your skin or across your eyeballs. That is also something you can find on YouTube that you may not want to look up. I think I'm going to pass on that one, Jess. <laughs> I don't think I want to see worms in somebody's eyeballs. Pass sounds... or pass out. Both. <laughs> <laughs> now, not all parasites are bad, right, Jess? Yeah, there's actually good parasites that we carry with us all the time that help our body. Yeah, one of those is a mite that lives on our face primarily, our eyelashes and our eyebrows, right? Yeah, we don't even notice them, but they feed on our facial oils, and when it comes time to breed, the females lay a single egg in your pores. Bet you didn't know that. These don't cause us any trouble, though. They live there symbiotically. You don't have to worry about these causing big wounds or laying eggs that are going to turn into larvae that are going to come out of your body in some way. These guys are happy campers just living on us. 
So whether good or bad, beneficial or detrimental, there are plenty of creepy crawlies that can inhabit your body, but so far, none of these is arachnid. Yes, that is great news. But ultimately bad for this urban legend because it specifically states that this was a spider laying eggs. All right, Jess, let's talk about our next story or our next urban legend, which is the vanishing hitchhiker. Yes, I remember listening to these urban legends while we were on road trips when I was little, and that's when it was particularly scary for me. Do you remember this urban legend, Eric? Yes, I absolutely am familiar with this type of urban legend, uh, particularly from Disneyland. When you go through the Haunted Mansion, at least when I was a kid going through the Haunted Mansion, there was this part of the ride where the chairs would turn and then you would have someone sitting next to you on the chair. Yeah, you would look into the mirror, and as you looked in the mirror, you would see a projection of what looked like someone sitting next to you. Now, vanishing hitchhiking stories, though, or urban legends, have been around for hundreds of years, though, as long as people have been, well... Hitching rides, right? Yeah. So the urban legend primarily goes like this. A hitchhiker, usually a beautiful woman of some sort, is offered a ride. Typically, she's described as having some sort of an unworldly appearance, either disheveled or pale or is in some type of a period clothing. And another big part of this story is that she does not typically communicate a whole lot with the person who is picking her up. She may state a location or a place, but that's really about it. And for the rest of the ride, she typically remains silent. Upon arriving at her requested location, the rider is given a shock when they discover that the passenger has vanished. Confused over the situation, the driver will typically go up to a house and knock on the door. A couple will typically answer the door and become emotional as the driver explains what happened. The couple then typically tell a story about a child who has either left home one day and never come back, or who has died suddenly. The parents then show the driver a picture of their daughter, and it is an exact match for the hitchhiker. So Jess, it's going to be really difficult for us to sit here and prove that ghosts exist. But without a shadow of a doubt, there are numerous stories that are told about vanishing hitchhikers, and one in particular that is very popular within our own state. Yes, that's Resurrection Mary. We did some research on this a few years ago when we did the 2020 Halloween episode for Hillbilly Horror Stories. Yeah, we reenacted a couple of those stories, and we'll share those with you here in just a few minutes, but these are well-documented vanishing hitchhiker stories that have been carried in national newspapers and is associated with a particular stretch of road and a particular cemetery in Chicago on Archer Avenue called Resurrection Cemetery, making Resurrection Mary one of the most well-documented and most seen hitchhiking ghost in the United States. Here is one of her most popular encounters. I was at the uh, Liberty Grove and Hall, which uh, is a dance hall, and I uh, spied this really attractive uh, blonde sitting in the corner. She must have sat there for a couple hours before I got the nerve to ask her to dance. She accepted, and we spent the next several hours just dancing and talking. One thing that I noticed about her was that her skin was very cold. Icy, really, to the touch. As 
the evening concluded, I asked if I could drive her home, and she agreed, giving me an address on South Demon Avenue. As we left, she asked me if I could go the way of Arch Avenue, which was strange because it was really out of the way, but I didn't care. I just wanted to spend as much time with her as I could. As I uh, approached uh, Resurrection Cemetery, she asked me to pull over and let her out there. I was confused, but I did pull over, and I didn't understand why she wanted to get out at such a dark and odd location. There was a row of houses just off of Archer, and I assumed that she was going to go over there. I asked her if I could walk her home. She declined and turned in a seat facing me, and that's when she said, This is where I have to get out, and where I'm going, you cannot follow. I didn't understand, and before I could respond, she jumped out of the car and ran towards the gates of the Resurrection Cemetery. And right there, before my eyes, I swear to you, she vanished. While this story is typical of a classic hitchhiking ghost story, there is one difference, and that is that in this story, the ghost is very interactive. There is another well-documented story of Resurrection Mary that happened in 1979, which follows the hitchhiking urban legend stories. This story appeared in the Suburban Tribune and was told by a cabbie who identified himself as Ralph. It was a Thursday night, and I was lost. I dropped this big spender way the hell down in Palo Heights, or hills, or someplace like that and I was trying to make my way back to the tollway. I just turned onto Archer, down there where it's still a lonely road, especially at midnight. And there she was. She was standing there, with no coat on, at the entrance of this little shopping center. No coat. And it's one of those really cold ones, too. She didn't put her thumb out or nothing like that. She just looked at my cab. Of course, I stopped. I figured, Maybe she had car trouble or something. She hopped right in the front seat and she had on this fancy kind of white dress like she'd been to a wedding or something. And those new kind of disco type shoes with the straps and that. She was a looker. Blonde. I mean, I didn't have any ideas like that. She was young enough to be my daughter. 21 tops. I asked her where she was going and she said she had to get home. I asked her what was wrong, if she'd had car trouble or what, but she really didn't answer. She was fuzzy. Maybe she'd had a couple of drinks or something and was just tired. I don't know. Oh, the only thing she really did say was that the snow came early this year. Other than that, she just nodded when I asked and if we were supposed to just keep going up Archer. Mainly, she was just looking out the windows at the snow and the trees. It was obvious that her mind was a million miles away. Maybe she'd smoked something, or was on drugs or something. Who knows? A couple of miles up Archer, and there she jumped with a start like a horse. I was like, here, here. I hit the brakes. I looked around and didn't see any kind of house. Where, I said. And then she sticks her arm out and points across the road to my left and says, there. And that's when it happened. I looked to my left at this little shack, and when I turned, she was gone, just vanished, and the door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead. It never opened. So, as you can see, Resurrection Mary is not your typical hitchhiking ghost, but she is one of the most seen ghosts 
and most well-documented ghost in the Windy City. If you would like to hear more about the story of Resurrection Mary, you can check out Episode 17, The Halloween Carnival of Horrors. Alright folks, this seems like a good place to go ahead and take a break. Stick around, and we will be right back with some more mostly true urban legends. What's up, everyone? I'm John. And I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Spread the Dread Podcast, your weekly source for serial killer stories, true crime tales, and horror movie hobnobbing. If you like the dark side of life with a lot of swearing, and humor guaranteed to get you banned from social media and family gatherings, visit SpreadTheDreadPodcast.com and come vibe with your tribe. We release brand new episodes every Wednesday. And you can find them on all major podcast platforms as well as YouTube and BitChute. But be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, too. Wow, John, uh, you just went like 45 seconds without swearing. Ah, oh, motherfucker. Alright folks, we are back. Let's continue on with some more mostly true urban legends. Jess, I don't think we can complete this series without doing the kidney heist. Definitely. So, let's start with the tale, or the urban legend, of the kidney heist. The story goes like this. A businessman goes to Las Vegas or some other big city for a business trip. He spends most of the evening at the hotel bar drinking with another group of businessmen who are also staying at the hotel. The night pretty much becomes a blur as he's having fun and getting drunk, but he doesn't remember anything else. All he knows is that he wakes up the next morning in his room at the hotel in a bathtub full of ice with his shirt missing, and there's a note taped to the wall saying, Call 911 if you want to live. The man immediately calls 911, and the operator asks him to touch his back. When he reaches around himself to touch his lower back, he feels a long scar. Someone had done crude surgery on him, removing his kidney, which we assume was then sold on the black market for some insane amount of money. So Jess, do you think it's common for 911 operators to be like, fill your back? <laughs> I don't think so. Reach around you and see what you feel instead of, where are you? How can we send an ambulance? What happened? Just reach around and feel for a scar. Yeah, so I think that's probably one of the first red flags associated with this story is that the 911 operator is not really helpful. That's just the first red flag. Not waking up in a bathtub full of ice and having a sign saying, call 911 if you want to live. If you were so unscrupulous that you would steal someone's kidney, would you really care if they lived or died or leave a note? That kind of sounds ridiculous. So this sounds like the uh, original ice bucket challenge, yes? <laughs> <laughs> now, there are at least a couple of different variations of the story. One variation includes him meeting a femme fatale of some sort, a beautiful woman at the bar who lures him up to the room and then drugs him and then stills his kidney. Other variations of this story include people or children being kidnapped and having their organs taken forcibly from them. 
And ultimately, this urban legend is based in the fear of organ trafficking. Now, while organ trafficking is real, it is typically done throughout the world, not by force, but by consent. Right, Jess? Yes, but even this is becoming legal in most countries. And what this did is it allowed people from third world countries like India, the Philippines, Latin America, to actually sell their organs in a way that gives full consent for this to be done for money. The kidney heist urban legend started to become popular in 1989 when a Turkish man claimed that he had been lured to London with the offer of a job. When he got there, he went in for a medical check and was given an injection that he believed to be a blood test, but when he woke up the next day, he found that his kidney had been removed. He was told not to be upset because he would be paid for his loss. This man's name was Ahmet Kok, and it was revealed later that he had lied. Ahmet did travel to England. He did have his kidney removed, but he did this voluntarily and of his own free will sold his kidney. He was later upset by the amount that he received, and so he took the story to the press, accusing them of stealing his kidney. At this time in 1989, it's important to note that in Britain, it was legal to transplant brokered kidneys, which means that the kidneys could legally be bought and transplanted at that time. However, three doctors who participated in this surgery were later found guilty of professional misconduct. So while it was legal at the time, it was not necessarily moral. Thankfully, laws all across the world have been changing since that time, and it is not legal in Britain and most other countries to buy or sell organs. Now, we say most other countries because there are countries in which this is considered to be perfectly legal and people can sell their organs for money. But even countries where this was once considered to be very active, places such as India, where many young adults voluntarily sold off one of their kidneys, it is becoming less and less common because starting in 1994, the Indian parliament passed a law making it illegal to buy or sell human organs for transplantation. But there is a loophole in this law that allows people who are related to the recipient only by, quote, ties of affection to donate organs under some circumstances. And Jess, I would say that, quote, ties of affection is kind of a loose term. Yes, anyone could have ties of affection to money. Oh yeah, no doubt. So as far as becoming an urban legend, this has been circulating the internet at least since the early 1990s when it started gaining notoriety through multiple types of email, particularly chain mail type emails that were being sent, probably by even some of your family members. You probably got one of these traveler beware messages from your Aunt Patty back in the day. Yeah, the next thing that really makes this unlikely is that it takes an incredible amount of logistics to take someone's kidney in a way that it can be successfully transplanted. This is not something that can be done in someone's kitchen or a hotel room. First of all, the operation would take between four and six hours and would involve 10 to 20 support staff, including three members of a surgical team, an anesthesiologist, and two nurses, at least. 
Yes, this takes a very sophisticated team of individuals, and it would be practically impossible in America or even the West to assemble a large team of highly trained medical personnel to perform this procedure who are willing to engage in one, illegal behavior, two, unethical behavior, and three, jeopardize their careers and their reputations. Yes, and we're not talking even about things that would have to be done ahead of time, like blood test typing and histocompatibility tests. This is no small feat either, not something that you can do in a hotel room by just picking someone up off the street. So, while legal to sell your organs, particularly kidneys, in other countries, it's still done under controlled circumstances using modern medicine, anesthesia, and consent. But the idea of a quote-unquote organ heist or a organ theft is not something that is supported by actual evidence. But if we are wrong and you've had one of your kidneys stolen and you would like to tell that story, we would love to record it. (laughs) Yes. We'll give you a platform to tell your story. Yes, to literally hundreds of people across the world. All right, Jess, so we are going to tackle one more story here, and that is the infamous body under the bed. Ooh, I remember hearing about this, and I think I heard about it when I was staying in a hotel, which is kind of creepy. Was there a weird, stinky smell in your hotel? No, but I have been to plenty of hotels with weird, creepy smells. I believe that one of our honeymoon hotels might actually apply. <laughs> All right, Jessica, tell us the urban legend of the body under the bed. Sure. A couple checks into a hotel room, usually in a large city like Las Vegas, and they begin to smell something odd. They contact the hotel manager, who then assures them that there's nothing wrong. They proceed to sleep through the night, but when they wake up in the morning, the smell has become unbearable, and they decide to investigate and find out for themselves where the smell is coming from. As they search the hotel, they find a dead body inside the box springs of the bed they've just spent the entire night sleeping on. Now, there aren't many variations of this story other than the city that it takes place in. So sometimes it takes place in New York, sometimes it takes place in Las Vegas, sometimes it takes place in other large cities throughout the world. But ultimately, this is absolutely 100% true, right, Jess? Yes, there are several news stories that report dead bodies in the mattresses of hotel rooms. Yes, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of these types of stories. It is not uncommon at all. Apparently, a very common place to stash a body is underneath a bed or a bed frame. Doesn't seem like you'd really get away with your crime, though. I mean, nowadays, with the way you have to rent hotel rooms, you have to pay with a credit card and your ID. So even if you stashed a body and left it there, they're still going to find out who did it, right? I don't think the idea is for the body not to be found. I think the idea is to stash it long enough just to get away. Yeah, that makes sense. Because everybody in this situation is going to be found eventually. Well, Eric, let's talk about a few of those stories. Yeah, so urban legend-wise, this is another story that really started taking off in the 1990s. But several of the cases, including about five of them that we found, took place in the mid to late 80s as well. But urban legend-wise, this started taking off in around 1991. 
So here is a case from 1996. Quote, In July 1996, a woman's body was found under a mattress in the Colorado Boulevard Travel Lodge in Pasadena, California. Apparently, the motel staff discovered her 10 days after her demise and only after guests had complained for several days of a foul odor coming from that room. End quote. Here is another one. Quote, On 10 June 1999, the rapidly decomposing remains of 64-year-old Saul Hernandez were discovered inside the bed in room 112 at the Burgundy Motor Inn in Atlantic City, New Jersey. A German couple had spent the night sleeping over Hernandez's remains, and it was their complaint to the manager about the smell in their room which led to the discovery of the corpse. End quote. And here's one more. Quote, On 10th of July, 2003, a man checked into the Capri Motel, just east of downtown Kansas City, and began complaining about a foul odor in his room. Management told him nothing could be done about the problem, and he spent three nights in his room before checking out because he could no longer stand the smell. When the cleaning staff came in to make up the room on the 13th of July, they lifted the mattress and underneath found a man's body in an advanced stage of decomposition, end quote. Just how terrible of a hotel management is like, <laughs> there is nothing we can do about the smell in your room, sir. You must tolerate it I know, and pay us full price for it. That's really bad. I can't imagine that. I mean, at least most hotels I've been to, they've been very accommodating. I'd be like, manager, you come stay in this room and see if you can tolerate the smell. Yeah, we're definitely not staying at the Capri Motel. No, it doesn't sound very high class, that's for sure. It may not even be in business anymore. Maybe not. Another thing that I noticed about these stories, Jess, is that they were all in like June or July. So July 1996, June 1999, and July of 2003. Do you think that uh, this is more likely to occur in summer months because that's when people are more likely to travel? Or do you think it's just that the summer months cause more rapid decomposition? Or do you think it's more likely for people to get all murdery in the summer months when it's hotter? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. It's just, it's just so hot. We just got to kill people. Yeah, so just a quick peruse through some of these other stories that we found, which there are literally dozens of them. There are reports from Fort Lauderdale, from Miami, from... New York, Maryland. Yeah, New Jersey, Memphis, Tennessee, Las Vegas. The list literally goes on and on and on. There are multiple, multiple reports of this occurring across the United States. So the moral is, before sleeping in a bed in a hotel room, Check the box springs. And as far as an urban legend, I don't think that this can be classified any longer as an urban legend. This is a 100% confirmed fact. So would it be an urban fact? If there is such a thing as an urban fact, then yes, <laughs> it could be classified as an urban fact. An urban factual. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to conclude our urban legend series. We hope that you enjoyed it. Please consider reaching out and commenting if you have anything additional to add, or if you have other urban legends that you would like for us to take a detailed look at. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us. We will see you next time. All right, folks, that is the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us and let you know that we appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on social media, on 
Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you would like to share an experience, be on the show, or submit a story, you can do that through our email at prairielandparanormalpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. So, until next time, remember, don't be normal if you can be paranormal.